Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. Today I'm going to be talking to you about what's going on here at the homestead, making nucleus colonies and a little bit of bee math. So homesteading news. Um, well, firstly, this past weekend we just had Father's Day and I wanted to give a big shout out to all the dads out there in the world. Um, I am actually not in contact with my own father uh, for many reasons. Um, My parents divorced right before I got married and I never had a great relationship with my dad because of his behavior. And this past Christmas, actually, um, that behavior kind of ramped up to a point where he did something that I considered unforgivable. And I told him that I needed some time to just be distant from him and think everything through. And since then, I haven't heard hide nor hair of him. Um, He hasn't checked on me during the pandemic, even though I have an autoimmune disease and I'm higher risk. Uh, He didn't check up on me about my um, risk of skin cancer. Uh, He just hasn't been in touch at all. And um, the only communication that we have is through a lawsuit that he started against my mother and it's very ugly and it's very uncalled for and it makes things difficult so I'm very grateful that I still have my mom and my brother to be my family Um, but I'm, I'm raising this here because I'm not the only one out there who comes up on holidays and maybe feels you know bad memories surfacing or feels awkward because they don't have the kind of family relationship that maybe they wanted so if you're out there and you grew up you didn't have a dad or maybe your dad hurt you or you had to cut your father out you're not alone um i hear you i see you i'm right there with you but also you know really it makes me grateful for all the wonderful men in the world and some of which I know personally who are good dads who they dig in they do the hard stuff as well as the fun things they build their children up they support their partners and they are just all in when it comes to parenting and all those dads out there um, you guys give me hope so I hope you had a really wonderful father's day I hope you got spoiled rotten and um, please keep doing what you're doing because we need more good parents out there. While I'm sort of semi-ranting, because this just happens and I still can't believe it. So I went shopping, Tuesday's my grocery shop. And um, I went shopping this morning and when I was putting my cart back, I saw a grown ass man, like this guy had to be 40. And he pulled, he was wearing a face mask, but he pulled it down so that he could spit on the ground right in front of where people have to walk to get into the store and then put his mask back on. And I thought I'd seen everything, you know, like we're seeing kids coming back from vacation and bringing COVID with them. We're seeing, you know, churches where almost everyone has COVID because they won't wear masks and all this kind of stuff. And so I thought like, I've seen it all, but I have never, I, I was so close to just following him in the store and just yelling at him and asking like did I really see you pull your mask off so you could hock a logie onto the floor like some kind of animal it was appalling absolutely appalling I never seen anything like it um so don't don't be that person (laughs) not that I think any of you would but oh good lord so yeah this is why I leave the house like once a week because people are gross um as for the house and the animals so we actually went our internet went down again. We keep on having problems with it in this house. And I think it's because the house is very old. 
Um, and it's two parts. One is an addition. And so the even when the internet's working, you can only get it on one part of the house. You need to have an extender to get it on the rest of the house. And for whatever reason, the study seems to be like a dead zone, which is problematic because, you know, my husband works from home. So we had to buy some new equipment and we might have to get some rewiring done. And so I haven't been as active on social media because I was hoarding my data on my phone. Um, but you know, otherwise things at the home stead have been good. Um, I do have a hen in my big flock, Dottie, who seems to have a respiratory infection and she had it last year actually. And the good news is that I still have some medication left over for when I treated her last year. So I've gone ahead and I'm doing that. It's a, a drop form of antibiotics and you put it into the nostrils once a day for two weeks and so that's good that I have it on hand and the other good news is that the rest of the flock seems to be immune to it so it's just Dottie who gets it and no one else seems to have it but I was just out with the chickens actually and I do think it's working because her breathing doesn't sound as bad, but her comb is pale. So she's obviously not feeling well. And I'm thinking that I'm going to have to set the chicken hospital up again in the downstairs bathroom and I'm going to bring her in. She's not as tame as sweet Agatha is, but um, that's okay. I just, I'd like her to be in a more controlled environment while I figure out, you know, what's going on with her because she's definitely having a harder time than she did last year. And then because, you know, one thing happens and so something else has to happen in the special needs coop, one of the Cleveland hens, who I've kind of loosely called Bubbles, she's the bigger one who has most of her beak. I noticed that she had a dirty little butt and I cleaned it up for her because she wasn't cleaning it herself and it came back. So I cleaned it again and then I started watching her and I realized that she was having diarrhea and Now, this could be due to the fact that it's been very hot and humid here. And although I'm careful that the coops aren't in direct sunlight, you know, there have been a couple of days that it felt intolerable outside. And so it's possible that she's just consuming a huge amount of water and that's making everything looser. There's no visible signs of worms in her feces. And the other girls haven't picked up on it if it is a worm. But I decided to try and get my hand on an all-purpose dewormer just to you know see if it will help and I ended up getting a product um, called strike three I'm going to try and remember to put a link in the episode description and it's like a natural product so it's mainly like pumpkin and yeast and garlic and things like that but I've seen that people have had success with it and the reason I went for it is because the wormers that I could get without a prescription right now came in huge doses and I would waste so much of it to try and dose just one little chicken. And I really didn't want to do that. Um, so I'm going to see how this goes. If it doesn't get any better, I'll take a fecal into my exotic vet and, you know, he can give me some wormer if, if we need it. In more positive news, um, my three sisters' beds, because I have two now, um, the corn finally got tall enough that I could plant the beans. So I did that last week. And the original bed that I made, which you might remember I mentioned, it doesn't get enough sun. The corn is growing though. So because it's not getting as much sun, it's actually behind the second bed, which does get adequate amounts of sun. So it's just slower growth. 
So I did put some beans there and I'll have to see if they will grow or if it's just not going to work. But either way, the corn is, you know, a good like coming up to two feet now. And then the front bed where it gets a lot more sun um, is doing really, really well. The sunflowers are coming up on the borders. The corn's coming up really, really nicely. I just put the beans in. The only downside is that something got under the netting and like uprooted a number of the corn and sunflowers probably a chipmunk we have a lot of them and the good news is most of the corn survived this and I could actually just you know replant them and they were fine but sadly probably about I don't know 30% of the sunflowers died from this and they just couldn't recover but I do have my own like sunflower patch so hopefully I'll still have enough of those um, once they reach full height Uh, My tomatoes and my zinnias are doing really, really well. The tomatoes are indeterminate. So that's the kind that will just keep on growing up and up and up. They don't have a preset height. So what I'm doing is I'm, I'm looking for like little suckers between the main stem and the out branching Uh, limbs and I'm taking those off because I don't want it to bush out yet I want it to get at least two to three feet before I let it start to grow out as well as up because I want it to put a lot of energy into building a nice strong primary stem so I probably every other day I'm out doing that and I really love it because I love the smell that green tomato smell of the leaves that's really nice and I'm really excited for when they start you know flowering and and fruiting And when I was out the front the other day, actually, uh, before the rain came in, you know, I've been out watering every day. I realized that the milky spore that I put down to kill the Japanese beetle larva worked because I haven't seen a single Japanese beetle yet this year. Touch wood that I'm not jinxing myself. But this is amazing news because I have been fighting these nasty pests since we moved into this house. And it means that my rose bushes that are particularly tasty to Japanese beetles and that were almost killed by them last year have a chance to recover. Now, I do have a couple of them that are, they've obviously been eaten up by some kind of caterpillar, but that's easier to deal with using a kind of soap and oil spray than the Japanese beetles, which really I was just picking them off using laws to trap as many as I could. You know, it just wasn't, it, it was like an uphill battle. So fingers crossed my rose bushes will now start to do a lot better in future years because this milky spore, you put it down and you're not supposed to need to reapply for like 10 years. I might reapply next year just to be on the safe side. You can do a, a spring a spring treatment and a fall treatment. So maybe I'll do that. And then hopefully I won't need to apply it again. So Definitely, if you are struggling with Japanese beetles on your property, I really recommend getting some milky spore. It worked wonders and I'm delighted. Um, Sort of speaking of my lawn, um, I know sometimes I've shared like funny dreams that I've had involving bees. And well, this is a dream that I had involving my lawn. So, you know, I've been having trouble sleeping. Um, I think I've mentioned that before. And some of it is like an increase in anxiety because of like the state of the world right now and some of it is like you know the pandemic um has affected where my husband works and you know his job security is now kind of in question so 
not that it's like he's on the chopping block but that kind of we're not really sure what's going to happen and that's very nerve-wracking you know so my anxiety has been kind of up there um but I had this really funny dream where I came it was so vivid it was like a memory thinking of it that I came out of my house and I found this neighbor who doesn't exist in real life but did in the dream spraying my lawn with some kind of nasty like uh, weed killer you know the ones that give everyone cancer kind of stuff and I came running out my house like no no what are you doing stop 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 why are you doing this and he told me that he hated the sight of all the dandelions on my lawn and he decided that because I was too lazy to deal with it he'd deal with it So in this dream, I'm like, get off my property. How dare you? You've just ruined the free food source for my bees and my chickens and my tortoise. And this guy was calling me a nut and a disgrace. And I ended up like yelling at him like a fishwife. And um, then I was threatening to sue him for ruining my lawn because if you apply treatment to lawns, you have to wait like three years before you can feed off uh, anything from that lawn to like chickens or Uh, reptiles in order to be safe because these kind of nasty things like live in the ground and then I woke up from the dream like still furious and that made me laugh um but uh I think some of it was because you know the passive aggressiveness from some of my neighbors about my lawn has started again this year like it does every year and in particular people seem to have problems with the fact that um I have a large it's a relatively large patch it's maybe like 20 by 15 foot of my side lawn that can't be mowed until we've had a really long dry spell because the ground is just like a swamp and if you step on it you sink down and you can't get a mower over it because it just falls into the earth and actually like there's quite deep ruts there from when I've previous tried to mow it when it was too wet And so it overgrows every year. It gets like two to three feet of just huge grass with tons of grass seed. And I understand why no one likes it, but it's kind of out of the way. It's my lawn and all the neighbors who are kind of passive aggressive about it know that we have a really big drainage problem there. Um, And that it's just, you just have to wait until it dries. Um, But that still doesn't stop, you know, the quote unquote helpful do you need my lawnmower? Do you need this? Do you need that? You know, kind of stuff, which frustrates me because I like, I want people to like me and I don't want people to think I'm not doing a good enough job. And I actually work really, really hard on, um, you know, mowing all of this with just a push mower because I'm not going to spend thousands of dollars on a riding mower just to keep my neighbors happy. Um, and you know, some neighbors are just convinced that if I had a riding mower, that it will magically not sink into the ground. And so my favorite neighbor um, actually offered to give it a go for me and I was like yeah let's let's see what happens I said just be really careful because it is so swampy under there it doesn't look it but it is she immediately drives out onto it and it, she starts sinking down and so she quickly got out as fast as she could before she got stuck and in the end I dealt with it with a weed whacker and my little trusty push mower and it took me a really long time because I had to stop and start and stop and start but I got it done and now thank hopefully people will stop getting at me about it um and I I don't know maybe this is a British thing I feel like growing up a lot of people that I knew had like issues with their neighbors and it it almost seemed like a cultural thing where you get nosy about what your neighbors are doing and then you judge them and everything and I don't want to do that I'm like please just like I know people don't 
always like the way I do things um, and that we're new to the neighborhood and a lot of our neighbors have been here for like 25 years. But it's like, I work really, really hard. I maintain the property how I want to maintain it. My lawn isn't overgrown, but I'm not gonna spray the weeds. I, th I think that's where the issue is, is that everyone else has pristine lawns with almost no weeds in it. Whereas I'm like, yeah, weeds, because I, <laughs> I feed them to my animals and um, I like the dandelions to stay for a while so that my bees can you know, get nectar and pollen and stuff. And so I think it's just a difference in how we do things. And I'm, I'm hoping that once we've been here long enough, they'll, you know, maybe cool off a little bit and understand that, you know, I'll do what I want. <laughs> um, and I think every year I'm improving things here, like adding new beds or adding new flowers or whatever. So hopefully they'll come to appreciate what I'm doing, but I don't know. <laughs> so um, that's my little rant. Thanks for bearing with me. So getting on to some primary topics here, I want to do a quick hive update. So we're in the nectar flow now and we've actually had some really great weather for the bees, like lots of uh, lovely warm to hot, dry, but not too dry. Like there are still water sources available. So there's been a ton of activity, lots of foraging. You know, the girls are bringing in pollen and nectar like gangbusters. It's been really, really great. And so as a result, things feel like they're moving very, very quickly. And I've actually had to consciously step back from my hives because I've been going into them too much now it's not the bees aren't mad at me the bees haven't told me off I haven't you know accidentally rolled a queen or anything like that but looking at my notes I realized that I'm just going in more than I probably should because you can overwork a colony you can annoy your girls by going in there so keep that in mind when I talk ahead that I I recognize now that um going in every couple of days probably wasn't a good idea. <laughs> and I am trying to leave it to seven to 10 days now, which is sort of my happy inspection period. Now, previously when I've talked about hives, I've done it by date. So I'll say it was May whenever, and then I'll run through all the hives. But this time, because so much has been changing, I think it makes more sense to just run it down by hive. So I'll start with hive one, I'll give the date, say what I did and so on, and then I'll do hive two. So let's start with hive one. This is my queen, Karedwin. She's a uh, fifth generation Ohio queen and this is her second year. So she's two years old. So on May 27th, it was hot and it was humid. It was about 85 degrees Fahrenheit and the real feel was like over 92 degrees. And I did an afternoon inspection and I went in, I found the queen, I found the eggs and I found brood. So those are great, right off the bat, that's all what I wanna see. And the queen, she was up in the top box. Now, when I went through the hive, I saw that there was backfilling. And as a reminder, backfilling is that when a bee emerges, before the queen can put eggs in there to keep it as like a brood frame, the girls come in and they fill that cell with pollen or honey. And it's kind of normal to see that at this time of year, but it does mean that you need to provide more space. So looking at the backfilling, I decided that um, I needed to decide on what day I was going to go in and pull frames to either make a nucleus colony or assess whether I should split the colony in the hopes of you know giving them more space reducing the population and so on so during this visit I ended up moving two frames around to encourage wax build up so if you have two frames of just foundation 
and they're up against, you know, frames that have been, had wax pulled on them. I like to do a frame with wax, a foundation frame, and then another frame with wax. And that's gonna encourage the girls to fill in that frame with just the foundation on it. And I saw again, I had some more burr comb, like quite a lot actually, which I had to remove and clean up. And the girls were relatively thirsty, so they'd consumed half of all the syrup that I'd given them. And this day I also did my first mite test of the year and they had a zero count, which is basically, I can't say they don't have mites, but it means that it's below threshold by a large margin. It's undetectable. So that's great. May 29th, it was hot and humid again. It was in the 80s. And this is the day that I went in and I took five frames to make my first nuke. And I'm going to talk about that later in the episode. June 2nd, it was not quite as hot, but still humid as hell. It was very sunny in the afternoon. I went in, I found the queen, I found eggs, and I found brood. And I noticed that there were queen cups being built on the bottom of the frames. There was still backfilling going on. And so this made me concerned that the bees felt the lack of space and they're thinking about potentially swarming. So one of the things I did, and I kind of did this on instinct, so I don't know if this was the right decision but I've been happy with the results is I ended up moving frames around to condense the brood area because I felt like what I was seeing was early signs of chimneying which is when the um, girls are primarily building wax on the middle frames in all the boxes and as a result there's a lot of frames on the outer edges that aren't getting wax put on them and the queen is just laying brood right in the middle from the bottom box all the way up. And so what I did is the I took brood frames from the top box and I moved them down into the bottom box, making sure that all the brood is kept together and then making sure that on the kind of bracketing the brood frames, they had enough food stores. So remember, brood needs pollen and then you also want to have honey there as well. I also at this time took one frame of brood and pollen for that first nuke that I had made and I replaced it with an empty frame. I left the feeder on at this time. June 8th was actually the day that the apiary inspector came out and I'll talk about that a little later in the episode and we didn't inspect this colony we we just peeked in because I told him I'd just been in it so we looked in the top box see how things were going and then when he left I also took the feeder off because the flow was picking up and I didn't want them to be storing sugar syrup I wanted them to be storing nectar to make honey. June 11th, I just peeked in the top box to see how they were building up wax. And I ended up rearranging three frames to encourage a more even build. June 14th, I went in, I found queen, eggs and brood. Um, I ended up moving some combs again so that the bottom box was entirely full with all built out comb and the majority of the brood. The middle box had about 90% built out frames and two to three of those were brood frames and they were quite full and then this left the top box with mostly empty frames with some wax build happening um, and I could see an increase in wax build. So the queen originally during this inspection was in the top box on a brood frame but I moved her down as I was rearranging frames. So hive number two this is Queen Marka she is my southern queen And this is also year two for her. And so she's the one surviving queen from my very first nucleus colonies. So May 27th, I go in, I find my queen, I find eggs, I find brood. That's great. 
This colony had really nice wax buildup earlier than the others. She also has a, a beautiful brood pattern, much improved from what I was seeing from her last year. There were some queen cups on the bottom of the frames, which I knocked down. She was in the top box. And I ended up adding an extra drone comb because this colony has two deep boxes and I wanted to have a drone comb in each deep. And this was mite check day and I got a reading of one mite in the sample, which is good. Um, it, that's very good. June 2nd, found the queen again, found eggs, found brood. The queen was in the upper box and she was feeling feisty. She did not want to be found. It took me a little bit of uh, time to find her. And I noticed an increase in the drones uh, and I noticed an increase in queen cups. So this is a swarm warning. If you go into your boxes and you suddenly see there's quite a lot of drones or there's quite a lot of drone cells being built and there's queen cups on the bottom of the frames, that's an early indicator of swarm behavior. So I broke down all those queen cups and I also decided that within the next week or so, I was going to make a nucleus colony from this hive. Now, one thing I have noticed in this hive that I don't really understand is that they have some filled out frames. So frames with wax cells on them, ready to go, but they don't seem to be using them and I can't figure out why. There's no signs of like mold or disease or hive beetles or anything, but they just don't seem to like these frames. I have no idea why, but it's something that I'm kind of monitoring. Um, I've all, I also considered adding a super, but I felt like there were just a couple too many frames that needed work. And I still had a feeder on at this point. June 7th was the day I took five frames to make a nucleus colony. And I replaced those frames with empty frames. June 8th was inspection day. And we just kind of peeked in and took a quick look at a brood frame, which looked wonderful. And this is the day I took the feeder off. June 11th, it was queen, eggs and brood found all those that's all good I took two frames for nucleus colony number three and replaced them with empties and I also noticed that there were less queen cups that had been made so that's a very good sign on June 13th I had a quick peek just in the top box to see how they were doing with the wax building and they still had about four to five frames that they had to draw wax on so it's definitely too soon to put another box on June 20th I went in, I did a full inspection. I found eggs, I found brood, I found my queen. The queen was in the top box and there were still some empty frames in the top box, but they should be getting close to 80, 90% soon. Um, so fingers crossed there. And this is making me think that I might want to on my next inspection, put a queen excluder on and then put a honey super and see how that goes. Now. Um, I'm a little nervous about using a queen excluder because I've heard that um, sometimes it can be a little off-putting to a colony. So I'm going to test it though. If they'll work with it, that would be awesome. If they won't, they won't and I'll just take it off. So next time I go out, I'm thinking I'm going to put a queen excluder and then another honey super, have the girls start pulling wax on it and then hopefully, uh, hopefully honey. Uh, speaking of honey, there's actually a few frames throughout this colony. It has three boxes on now where the frames are almost ready to be capped. So hopefully in a couple of weeks, I can start taking a few honey frames at a time for extraction, which would actually be really good because I can take them out, I can extract 
most of the wax would survive the process of extraction so i can put those frames back in the girls will clean the remaining honey out and then they have these frames ready for you know more storage or more brood I also, during this June 20th inspection, took a frame of eggs and brood for my nucleus colony number two. So hive number three, this is my Saskatraz queen. This is her first year. I got her in a package at the beginning of the season. So May 27th, I found the queen. I found eggs and brood. She has just one of the most beautiful brood patterns I've ever seen. It's absolutely stunning. It's just like the perfect rainbow pattern. It's just incredible. There was some minor backfilling going on, but not enough to be a concern. The queen was in the middle box. There was good wax production and these girls drink a lot. So I only had 25% of my sugar syrup left in their feeders. I did a mite test and they got zero, which I was really pleased about because I've heard that package bees can often come with quite a lot of mites. So this was a pleasant surprise. June 2nd, I went in, I found eggs and I found brood, but the queen eluded me and she does this a lot actually she's my hardest to see queen she's very fast and she's very shy but this colony is just booming with workers just so full uh the wax production has been amazing and the brood pattern is still totally on point this is also my super sticky hive these girls make a lot of propolis and in the heat it gets especially sticky so i have to take extra gloves out with me uh, the bottom and the middle box, they're both deeps and they both have brood and stores in them. I had put a honey super on for them and they hadn't started pulling any wax on it. Um, they have a feeder still on and I had found just a handful of queen cups on the bottom of the frames, which I broke down. On June 8th was when the apiary inspector came out to look at my apiary. And this is the hive that we went through. <laughs> and something I thought was interesting is that you might remember me saying that after I read about the wonderful genetics of Saskatraz honeybees, which didn't really touch on their personality, I then heard that they're kind of known for being a little bit more touchy and aggressive. But thankfully, I haven't seen any of that so far. However, when the inspector was here, he accidentally squished one of the worker bees when he was holding a frame. And the response from the other girls was very, very quick. So a little kind of cloud of bees immediately got on his glove and were preparing to sting him in response to that. So that was interesting to me. That's the first time I've seen them acting aggressively like that. But just a little bit of smoke cleared that all up. The brew pattern was gorgeous still. Um, and he admired it as well, which made me feel happy. <laughs> and he held the frame for me while I took a picture. Um... After he left, I took one frame of mixed brood for uh, nucleus colony number three. And then after I did that, I panicked because I realized that I hadn't identified where the queen was. Now, I was 99.9% .9 confident she wasn't on this frame because I purposely chose one that had quite a lot of brood on it and nurse bees. And I went over it so carefully to make sure she wasn't on it. But then I started getting paranoid and so I made myself promise I would come back out um, in a couple of days and I would do another inspection and find her. So on June 13th, I came back out and I did find the queen <laughs> and I was very relieved and there were eggs and brood. But there was also a very sharp increase in drones and queen cups on the bottom of frame. So they're thinking about swarming. So they have that honey super on 
but they need to pull the wax on it. And this was the first time I saw them showing real interest in that super, which made me hopeful that I can stave off swarming long enough for them to start building up in there. And I noticed they actually have some capped honey frames. So I need to get a move on, take those frames out, maybe extract the honey and put them back so they have a little bit more space. June 20th, I was back out there. I found eggs and brood. The queen wasn't going to be found. (laughs) And I did notice that there was a lack of space. And so there were less eggs than what I'd like to see. And this is not great. This is definitely going to trigger a need to swarm in them. Because basically they're bringing in nectar faster than the queen can get to those cells and put the eggs in. So I really need to get a move on and extract those honey frames and just keep a close eye on them. But on the plus side, the wax build in the honey super looked really good. Um, So basically from June 13th to June 20th, about 50% of those frames were being worked on. And there were two that already had wax being pulled on them and they were already bringing in nectar to fill those frames. So I rearranged the frames to encourage more even wax build. And I'm hoping that because this is going to increase the space where the queen can lay, we can prevent the uh, swarming until I can get in and extract some honey. And I'm also considering adding a queen excluder on this hive and then an additional honey super if they continue to be building wax with the um, speed that they have been. Okay, so next I'm gonna talk about my apiary inspector visit. I'm kind of gonna step you through the process a little bit. So as I said, on June 8th, the county apiary inspector came out early in the morning to see my hives and the state apiarist and entomologist also came along, although she was running kind of late. So I didn't get to pick her brain as much as I wanted because I was very excited that the state entomologist was coming out. Well, the big question is why do inspectors come out to apiaries? And mainly they're looking for diseases that could be damaging to all beekeepers in the area as well as tracking things like Africanized genetics. And county inspectors will work with state inspectors who in turn share information with organizations such as the USDA. And I will link in the um, episode description and on my website to the Ohio Apiary Program page because it has a really good rundown of, you know, who they're sharing the information with, why they're doing what they do, how the process works. Under Ohio law, a beekeeper should register their apiaries, although not all of them do. And it's very affordable. It's $5 per apiary location with no hive limit. And you pay that $5 once a year. So basically I could have a hundred hives here at the house and I would be paying $5. But if I had 10 hives here and then 10 hives at a second location, I would have to pay a total of $10 because it's $5 per location. And I think this is to help with like gas money for the inspectors who are driving around. But still like this is very, very affordable and it's, I think it's worth doing. Now, if you sell bees in any capacity, whether it's nucleus colonies, if you are a queen rearer, if you put together packages, things like that, you are required by law to register and be inspected yearly in order to receive your permit. 
And again, it's a really minor fee. I actually forgot to write down what the fee was, but I believe it's like $15 a year for that. Um, and, you know, it's because they're trying to track the movement of bees. So the big advantage to registering really is aside from obeying the law, which is really important. Um, and I think the reason why is, and I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying this like, we must all obey the law and be the perfect citizens. I mean, obviously <laughs> we should be law abiding citizens, but with bees, it's particularly important because let's say you live in an area where you've been keeping bees for 15 years. Well, some new neighbours move in and they don't like the fact that you keep bees and they go to your local government about it. When you can demonstrate that you've been abiding by all laws, that you haven't been a nuisance, that you've been registering every year, that goes a long way in the eyes of local government to say, well, beekeeping hasn't been an issue here. And it, it shows them that you're being responsible. And that can help you if you're dealing with people who maybe don't want you to keep bees anymore. But even bigger than that, what's really important is that you're contributing to your state statistics about apiaries in the area. And using this information and working with inspectors, your state can collect data such as how many apiaries there are total, how many have certain diseases in, in a particular year, how many have varroa mites, how many have small hive beetles, what kind of treatments are being used for various diseases, what treatments being used for varroa, etc. And then the state collates this information and shares it on a larger national level. So this is really important information about the health of managed colonies. And in particular, it's really important about the overall health of a state's apiaries. And when you register for that, you know, small $5 fee a year, you are agreeing to be inspected. It, it will be there on the page. And I was told when I started taking classes that you might go, you know, 10 years and never hear from your local inspector because many states have thousands of apiaries and they just choose ones that are like on a most convenient route or a new or whatever, like however they figure it out. So I was told do register, but don't expect to see your inspector. However, if you do see your inspector, this is a great learning experience because they are going to be an experienced beekeeper. They've gone through the training. They're going to have all kinds of information for you about how to identify disease. If you need to send anything off for testing, they'll help you with that. And then they also kind of just look at your colonies and say, this is what I'm seeing. Here are some general management guides or techniques, or here's something that you could do or not do. And so basically it can be as rewarding as you want it to be. If you're open to new information, um, it could be a really great learning experience for you. In terms of how my inspection went, um, I received an email from the state inspector on June 5th telling me that he'd be out on Monday the 8th. So not a huge lead time, but that's okay because I work from home. And I sent him an email back and I said I was happy to have him out and I wanted to be present for it, which you're always welcome to be there during the inspection, although sometimes they might have to inspect when you're not present. And um, I basically said what sort of time was he looking at or could he text me when he was on the way. I heard back from him on Sunday the 7th and he wanted to come out early morning on the 8th, which I was fine with. So I dragged my little tush up. I had breakfast all bleary eyed and I prepped my suit and smoker and I waited for him to come. So the inspector, Randy, very nice and polite. We chatted a little bit about my property and the area and the hives. 
And, um, and I explained to him that I'd been into two of the hives recently. And so he was like, we can skip those. And so I was a little surprised because I had in my mind that it was going to be this very like detailed, rigorous inspection where we went frame by frame in every hive and all the nucleus colonies. But no, uh, mainly what he was looking for is evidence that um, at least one of the hives had healthy brood and signs of X and that there was no signs of diseases. There weren't any obvious management issues. There was like nothing else um really to be done with them that they were being managed appropriately so being a huge bee nerd I've actually found it underwhelming because I was like expecting this like really like do this and do that and like critical like oh here's all this amazing information for you but it wasn't it was very much like yep you're doing things right this looks good that looks good he held up that frame for me to take a picture we had a nice chat about bees that was kind of it so the state entomologist arrived just as we were finishing up. We spoke a little bit about mite tests and she actually thanked me for using the alcohol wash method because it is deemed to be the most accurate. And then we talked a little bit about how I've treated mites in the past, like what chemical treatments I'd use, what kind of integrated pest management things like the brood comb, um, I'm sorry, the drone brood comb that I use and so on. And she was also kind of surprised that this area is so rural because we're quite close to Akron and I think a lot of people don't know that we're here which is sort of nice and it always makes me laugh it's I really love where I live it's a beautiful area and then she also she complimented the designs I paint on my hives which just made me happy because I feel like it looks like a toddler did it <laughs> so that was nice um but in terms of a learning experience there were two suggestions that were made that actually helped me a lot and the first one that I had tilted my hives um, so that any water, any moisture buildup would run out, which is particularly important in winter because you don't want it dropping straight down onto the cluster. You want it to, um, you know, run down the walls, tilt over them and then come out on the bottom. And it was mentioned to me that I have them tilted relatively steeply. It's like an inch, an inch to two inch, I think. And as a result, they said that I might see some burr comb issues, which I have been. And this is because bees rely on gravity to make straight comb. And so it was like a light bulb went off in my head and I couldn't believe I hadn't thought about that because yes, this year I've seen a lot of burr comb and it has been an issue. So I took all my hives off their little lifts and they're now all flat and I'm hoping over time I'm going to see less of a problem with the burr comb because of that. The other suggestion was that um, I was talking to them about the nucleus colonies I'd started and the first one had seven queen cells in it and I was talking to them because some of those queen cells were relatively small and you don't really want small queen cells you want the biggest ones because studies have shown that biggest the biggest queens tend to be the most successful and the best um at, they have more success mating and then therefore they tend to be better mated and they tend to therefore be better reproducers and so I was trying to decide whether I should knock down the smallest ones because if you leave the small ones and they hatch first they'll kill the queens that are in the bigger cells and that's not really what you want so Randy, who's the state inspector, suggested that I take some of the cells of different sizes out of the nuke and I create a whole other nucleus colony, which I thought was a really good idea. So I went ahead and I did that. And again, can't believe I never thought of it myself, but again, learning experience. 
So overall, it was a very positive visit. Um, if they come out again, I'm definitely not going to be as nervous as I was. And I received my certificate of inspection. So that's all very, very nice. Now, what I want to go on to talk about is building nucleus colonies and kind of share what I did, why I did it, um, and advantages. But before we get to that, I want to talk about BMATH because it's going to be very relevant. Now, BMATH is not chicken math, which is when you say to your partner, I'm only getting 10 chickens, my love, I swear, and they come out and you have a flock of 100. That's called chicken math. B math is the time between when an egg is laid to the emergence of that bee. So when you split a hive or make a nucleus colony and you don't add your own queen that you've bought from a queen producer, what happens is it's usually about four days that the bees in the split or the, colon or the nucleus colony realize that they don't have a queen anymore. And then the workers will choose one to two day old larva, so not eggs, larva, and they'll build that enlarged queen cell around that larva and they'll stuff it full of royal jelly. And that's how we get our queen cells. And the queen cells are easy to spot because they have a vertical orientation on the frame usually near the middle of the frame, not hanging off the bottom like with swarm cells. So it's a very different positioning. So knowing that larva is chosen to become a queen, we can look at bee math and figure out when the new virgin queen should emerge. So let me just run down um, how long each kind of bee, so queen, worker and drone, spends as an egg, as a larva, as a pupa and then emerges. So starting with the queen bee, she spends three days as an egg, six days as larva, seven days as pupa, which gives us 15 to 16 days from egg to emergence. A worker bee, three days as an egg, six days as larva, 12 days as pre-pupa and pupa, which gives us 21 days to emergence. And then we have drones. They're three days as an egg, seven days as larva, 14 days as pre-pupa and pupa, which gives us 24 days to emergence. So we can see that queens have the shortest period of time and drones have the longest. Now, knowing these numbers is important when attempting to raise your own queens or allowing your hive to raise their queen. And this is because, let's say you go into a split, the, the queenless part of the split, or you go into your nucleus colony and you see queen cells. That's good, but it doesn't mean that a queen will definitely emerge because sometimes a worker bee will sense something wrong with that developing queen and they'll actually break down the cell sorry, and they'll kill the larva or the pupa inside. If you check on a colony that had queen cells and you see that all those queen cells have been pulled down before the 15 to 16 days we know a queen needs to develop and emerge, then you know that that colony chose to abort those developing queens. And that means that you're likely going to need to offer them more eggs and brood to work with in order for them to successfully rear another queen. If you somehow miss this window, like something stops you from getting into your colony and you're not really sure whether there is a virgin queen in there or whether they pull down the cells, you can do a little bit more bee math. After the virgin queen emerges, she takes five to six days to mature. And this involves hardening her exoskeleton, working her flight muscles and increasing in size. 
then she'll take mating flights over a period of one to five days and this is very dependent on the weather so she can't fly when it's raining for instance next she'll take about two days to move all the semen that was collected during mating into her spermatheca and then through the oviducts and just sort of generally preparing to lay. So she'll increase in size again and um, she'll grow heavier with gravidity. So at a bare minimum, we're looking at eight days from emergence to laying, but you almost never see that. It's usually more common to see a period of 14 to 21 days until your queen starts to lay after she emerges. So using that math, you can figure out the likelihood of whether your split or nucleus colony has a queen. And you can also assess the colony itself to know whether a queen is present. A queenless colony has a very different sound and feeling to it. Basically, the bees are distressed by the lack of their queen, and they're going to fan more than usual in an attempt to spread the remaining pheromones around, which makes the hive a lot louder than usual. They're also more cranky, and they can be quite defensive. After a long enough period, you might find multiple eggs laid haphazardly in the cell, usually along the walls, which is a sign that one of the workers has developed a reproductive system and is now laying in fertile eggs, and you're going to end up with all drones. So if you go into your colony and it's calm and content, you do likely have a queen or a queen in process. Now, virgin queens, they're smaller and quicker. They haven't fully built up in size yet, and that can make them quite hard to identify. So knowing your bee math can really help you figure out what the chances are that she's present in the colony. And to quote Kim, Kim Flottam from his Backyard Beekeeper book, he says, more bees in the air louder sounds and a greatly agitated state typify a short time queenless colony. Now, the only thing I would add to this in terms of the way a colony behaves when it doesn't have a queen is that you could have a colony without a queen, but if they're still brood in there, they might still be calm. And as I've said before, bees love babies and brood pheromone is just as powerful, if not more so than queen pheromone. So there's always the chance that there's a period of time where your nuke actually is queenless, but there's enough brood in there that the workers are calm because they have a job to do. They can smell that pheromone and it's keeping them basically chilled out. And the best way to check this, if you suspect this might be happening, is to get a frame of eggs and very young larvae from one of your queen right colonies and put it into the potentially queenless one and see if they start pulling queen cells. And this is actually something that I did for my nucleus colony number two. So let's talk about nucleus colonies. Now, some of you might remember that I had discussed this year being the year I would make nucleus colonies because I went to a talk by Michael Palmer who overwinters nucleus colonies with great success and it helps him in being self-sustaining, i.e. not having to constantly buy new bees and new queens. And I just kind of had that spirit of curiosity and I wanted to see if I could overwinter two nucleus colonies. So that was the plan. Um, I now have three nucleus colonies and I might even make a fourth one if the flow continues to be as strong as it has been. Now, the first question that comes to mind when I'm thinking about why I went with nucleus colonies over splits is, um, you know, why? What's the benefit of building nukes as opposed to just splitting our big, strong 
colonies. And the main issue for me is that a split halves the workforce. So remember, when you're splitting a colony, you're basically creating an artificial swarm. You take 50% of the colony, um, its resources, its brood sprains, you just split it evenly down the middle and identify the queen and take the 50% of the colony with the queen and move that to a new location, which mimics swarming because it's always the existing older queen who leaves. And then what you have is you have now half of that colony left behind queenless and they have to make their own queen. But the problem when you do this is that you are diminishing the workforce for each of those hives. So you went from one big, strong, booming colony and now you have two smaller ones. And so they have to work really hard to build back up their stores, create more wax, particularly if you don't have frames with wax on them like if you just have the foundation frames and the girls need to draw their own wax that's hugely energy intensive and you've just split the population so they have to work harder and it's going to be more slow and so usually if you're splitting you're decreasing your chances of getting a honey harvest and there's also the issue of if you split a colony, you need to keep an eye on those two smaller colonies to make sure they're building up fast enough and storing enough honey to get through winter. Because as we're going into fall and we're going into that dearth, we want to see both a population increase so that there's enough bees to cluster and survive the winter. But then we also want a certain amount of honey, which they're going to consume over the cold months. And So you're kind of running the risk that maybe they won't build up fast enough and that can be a concern. There's also the pressure of time in terms of the colonies making a new queen. So there's no guarantee that just because a colony tries to raise a queen that they're going to be successful. It's possible that it was just a really bad period of time for mating and they did create a queen but she mates poorly and now you have a hive that's not doing great. Or maybe they keep on aborting the queen cells for reasons that you don't know you keep on having to retry and then eventually when you figure out that they're just not going to raise a queen and you decide to buy one maybe you've missed the window for that and all your local queen sellers don't have any available and if this happens you might have to merge back that queenless colony to another strong colony which kind of undoes all the work that you did in the split to begin with so the advantage to nucleus colonies is that they're small so there's less space and that means that there's less work to be done in terms of like drawing wax or bringing in honey it's a smaller colony it needs less stores and based on Michael Palmer's talk it seems that all you need is a two super nucleus colony to get them through winter and that's just 10 frames total and so you have your brood in the bottom box with um trying to remember I think it's three frames brood and then honey on either side and then the top super is just all storage and if you start nukes in the spring you increase the time period to let your bees try and raise their own queen and if it takes a few more tries you have that uh, you actually have the time available without the pressure of the approaching dearth and there's also plenty of drones around for mating so I specifically waited until I saw an increase in drones in my own colonies because that gave me a better indication of drone production in other colonies which obviously I'm going to rely on for mating purposes 
So starting nucleus colonies in spring or early summer, it gives you a greater chance as well of sourcing a queen from a breeder or a fellow beekeeper if you fail to raise your own. And I say this because I've noticed that um, the general pattern, at least here in Ohio, is that as packages and such are coming in in early spring, most of the queens are spoken for. But then as we go through and we come into the nectar flow, local queen rearers will have other queens being made and slowly becoming ready. And so there's a good chance that you can find one for your colony. But I've also noticed conversely that once you get to fall, the chances of finding a queen to buy decreases sharply. So this is why I chose to start my nucleus colonies in spring instead of late summer, which is another option. And then also, if you start a nucleus colony in the spring, it requeens promptly and it starts to build up, suddenly you have this great resource because you're limited, if you're doing the two super thing, you're limited to 10 frames for that colony and you don't want them to swarm. So you might have to be taking honey out and you can either extract it, freeze it for winter feeding or give it to a hive that needs the stores or they're filled with brood and there's no space for storage. So you can take that brood out and you can give it to a hive that needs a little boost. Or you could just keep on rearing queens. You can take the eggs and the young larva out, put them in another nucleus box, let that colony raise its own queen, or you can buy a queen and requeen it yourself. You have a lot of time to basically work with these colonies. And I've also been thinking about how they might be a good source of wax production. So maybe keeping my girls busy by producing wax and filling out frames I can then either let them keep them or I can move those frames into a colony that's really slow at wax production and so on it's basically a way of free resources so I made three uh, nucleus colonies in the end and I'm going to start with my first one which I've not very inventively called nucleus colony number one and I created it on Friday May 29th and it's from my Ohio queen hive And that's hive number one. And I chose that hive because that's the hive that came out like gangbusters after winter. They did amazingly well over the winter and they've been fantastic so far. So I really wanted to propagate those genetics. And to make a nucleus colony, I have five frame nukes. So I took three frames of eggs through to capped brood, one frame of honey and one frame of pollen. And the way I organized that was the three frames of eggs to brood is right in the middle and they're bracketed by the one frame of honey and the one frame of pollen so that the brood has contact with the food. I also brushed in a number of foragers from hive number one and then I sealed the entrance overnight so they couldn't just fly right back to their hive. And then the following morning on the 30th, I did open the entrance. I kept it reduced though and it looks like the majority of the foragers did stay. June 2nd, I went into this colony and we'd actually had a cold snap where for two to three nights, we'd got down into the 40s. And so not entirely unsurprisingly, I did find that one of the frames with very, very small brood, those brood had all died. They were like little tiny larvas and they'd all died from the cold because the cluster wasn't big enough to encompass all of them. There was just the one queen cell being started, which again, not really surprising considering how long it had been and then the cold weather. And so I took out the frame of dead brood and I put it into a healthy colony to clean out. And I put in a new frame of eggs, brood and pollen from hive number one. 
On June 8th, I went in and there were seven queen cells. Now this is the, uh, the colony that some were a little bit small, but they were spread out on three frames. So I took two frames with queen cells and I made nucleus colony number three. And this is also the day that I added a super with two frames in for them to pull wax on and a feeder because I wanted to give them the best shot. So I decided that because they don't have as many foragers, they need help with the food. June 11th, I go in and all the queen cells have gone. Now, this puts us as day 13, which would be a very early queen emergence. So either a queen came out a little early or the girls aborted the cells. And it's hard for me to say either way. I just have to wait and watch. Otherwise, this colony is calm and active. June 13th, no sign of a virgin queen, no new queen cells, everyone's calm. There have been new foragers doing their orientation flights and they're eating away at the sugar syrup. So things are looking good. June 17th, I go in and they've completely sucked down all the syrup. So I refilled it and I found new queen cells, three large ones that looked very, very good. So this raised the question of what happened. Did a queen not return from a mating flight or was there never any queen to begin with? I don't know. June 20th, they have... (laughs) eating almost all the syrup again I need to get cracking on making more syrup and the queen cells are all on the same frame there's still just the three of them but they're very big and they look really good nucleus colony number two was created on June 7th and this is from hive number two which is my southern queen my second strongest hive coming out of winter again I took three frames of eggs and brood one frame of honey one of pollen and I went ahead with this nucleus colony and I just put the second super on top straight away with two frames and a feeder. June 11th I peeked in and there were multiple queen cells over three and the colony is calm and sucking away at that syrup. June 13th I go in and there's more than four queen cells now but two are a little on the small side. June 17th there's no queen cells they're all gone. And now this has only been 10 days, so there's likely no virgin queen. For whatever reason, they aborted all of the queen cells. So I refilled the feeder, I watched them for a little bit, and I noticed there was an increase in foragers, which is a good sign. June 20th, I went in, and there were still no queen cells being built. So I ended up adding a frame of eggs and brood from hive number two. And again, I need to make more syrup for these girls. And really at this point, where are we? It's the 23rd that I'm recording this. So probably in a day or so when the weather's better, I'll peek in and I'll see if they've got some queen cells pulled. So now we have nucleus colony number three, and this was created on June 8th, where I took some of the queen cells from nucleus colony number one, which is the Ohio queen genetics. And I placed them in a single deep 10 frame box because I had no more nuke boxes. So what I did is I took extra frames from hive number one to fill out the box. I put a double jar feeder on because they have a lot more space to fill and I reduced the entrance. On the 11th, I had two to three queen cells. The population wasn't as good for this hive. I did try and brush foragers in when I made it, but a number of them managed to fly home before I could stop up the entrance. And so I decided that I was going to add two frames of eggs and brood from hive number two. And so this is kind of muddling the genetics, but 
really I needed to make some space in hive number two because I had found a lot of those queen cups, I found a lot of drones and so I figured this was a good way to make a little extra space. June 13th I look in and there's only one queen cell of a really good size which made me wonder if they had decided to tear the others down and just focus on this one big queen cell. They did still have eggs to work with and very good stores so they can build more queen cells if needed and that's actually what they did because on June 17th I go in and there's three big chunky queen cells that look really good. The colony is calm but busy, they're sucking down that syrup and I didn't see as many foragers as the other nucleus colonies yet but it's comparable to what I'd seen when the other nucleus colonies were at this same kind of age. June 20th, um, I found that the three queen cells were still there, two have been freshly sealed, and one was just about to be capped. So that's all a very good sign. The population's looking good. They're starting to build wax on empty frames and they need more syrup. <laughs> so I need to get busy making that. So I hope that little rundown about what I saw and what I experienced and then referring back to the BMath was clear. So in particular, one thing I want to point out is what happened with nucleus colony number two, which is where I realized that there had only been 10 days since the queen cells were made. And so using the BMath, I could figure out that this wasn't a case of a queen emerging. This was a case of they decided to abort those queen cells for some reason. And because I was able to figure that out using BMath, I could put more eggs and brood in for them to have another crack at raising a queen. And I am optimistic that my next update will be able to say, I went in and I found that they pulled some nice, big, healthy queen cells. So fingers crossed, watch this space. And that's it. Uh, if anyone's listening out there who's like a seasoned keeper or a newbie keeper, let me know about your experience with nucleus colonies and or splits. Uh, did you split this year? Did you make nukes? Why? Why not? Let me know how things are going. I always like to hear from you. You can reach me uh, through email at homesteadhensandhoney at gmail.com or you can find me on Instagram where I tend to be a bit more active, Facebook, Tumblr and Twitter. I'll have my website linked in the episode description like always as well as a link to the Ohio Apiary website and I'm also going to see if I can find a link to the strike three that I bought for worming my flock. Um, please do look at my website. I have very carefully chosen photos to go along with this episode. You can see what a five frame nuke looks like, how to identify a queen cell versus a swarm cell. And then also um, I took some pictures from one of my books of a really handy little graph that helps you with BMath. I hope that you're all staying safe out there, that you're staying healthy and that whenever possible, you're staying self-isolated. And unlike that person I saw today, you're not spitting on the ground. <laughs> uh, I just... I know things are crazy. Things are going to be crazy for a while, apparently. One day we're going to look back on 2020 and <laughs> marvel at how absolutely mad it's been. Uh, that is not today, but soon, hopefully. So as always, hug your hens and then wash your damn hands. <laughs> Take care and I will be back with my next episode to cover a couple more chapters of Thomas Ely's The Lives of Bees. And I'm quite excited because we're getting into the nitty gritty now and we're talking about the nest area and population increase. So 
I hope that you'll be back here in two weeks to listen to that episode. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.